welcome to the Real Clear Values podcast with me, Tom English. This is a podcast about values, the good, the bad, and the ugly. We've all heard the phrase, that's just rhetoric. But rhetoric is much more than just rhetoric. That's what David Erland Isaacson, Associate Professor of Communication at USN School of Business, talks about in this episode of the Real Clear Values podcast. Far from serving the purposes of manipulation and demagoguery, rhetoric and strong rhetorical skills can help us to guard against the deceitful manipulations of demagogues. What's more is that strong rhetorical skills are essential in communicating our values clearly and persuasively to others. If you are interested in learning more about the art of rhetoric and why it's so relevant to what's happening in the world today, as well as how you can develop your own rhetorical skills, then this one is for you. Enjoy. David Isaacson, welcome to the Real Clear Values podcast. Thank you. Happy to be here. (laughs) David, I'm so interested to speak with you. I know we've been speaking for a little while now about trying to set something up so that we can talk. And my real interest in speaking with you is that you are, by definition and by every measure, an expert in rhetoric and rhetoric seems to be so topical right now. I know just before the call we were talking about how it's always relevant because it's part of how humans communicate with each other and they persuade each other but now it feels particularly relevant and it's particularly I feel particularly relevant in how we communicate values with one another as well. So could you just give us a little bit of an overview in the expertise that you have in relation to rhetoric? Okay. Well, uh, it started really when I um, when I started in my bachelor's program. I had this uh, course that was called Pragmatics, which talks about how how we create meaning uh, in the interplay of language between each other, and uh, that's where I was first introduced to rhetorical concepts. And what I understood that um, from that study was that um, a lot of the things that I was doing right when I was writing my arguments in university papers. I was, I was often um, not necessarily more knowledgeable than my co-students, but I was a better able to formulate arguments. And I was doing some things naturally that uh, that rhetoric was really the art of understanding how people could do that um, and what I was doing. And so uh, after a, uh, a brief master's in uh, uh, translation and interpreting at uh, UCLan, I went on to take a master's in uh, in English at BYU with a focus in rhetoric and composition and decided I wanted to go further with that. So I took a PhD in uh, in rhetoric and composition at TCU. Um, And uh, I've had, my focus is uh, really uh, rhetoric. Uh, Composition is more about the the art of teaching to write, learning, learning writing, writing pedagogy and so on, writing research. Uh, but my real focus and passion has really been in, in rhetoric and uh, both the classical and what you would call the new rhetorics, where we talk about some people like Kenneth Burke, Kyle Perlman, uh, Stephen Tolman, and so on. So, um, And along with the, the study of it, I've also uh, tried to apply the principles. I, uh, I try to work on becoming a better communicator myself and uh, especially the ethics of it. I, I'm very mm-hmm. passionate about Interesting. We'll, we'll definitely get on to talking about the ethics of it, certainly, especially in relation to this podcast and its focus. How would you? Well, just, just to mention, just 
but just to mention uh, a little bit about the ethics, I mean, my, my PhD, my dissertation topic uh, was the Manhattan Project researchers and um, uh, the arguments and thinking that went into making the atomic bomb. Right. Wow. Okay. Well, yeah. <laughs> that's, that's certainly an ethical question and, and something that, that, that requires considerable discussion about in, in relation to, to, to the rights and wrongs, not just about who has the slickest argument. So that's quite interesting in and of itself. How would you, how would you define rhetoric then to a layman, somebody who's coming mm-hmm. to this from, from the outside and they, they don't know anything about it and they, they think it's just simply about just trying to, to persuade? Is, is there anything more to it than that that you'd like to say? Well, I mean, the, that comes a bit from uh, Aristotle's definition of it, right? So Plato was saying that rhetoric is just kind of a knack to know where the audience itches and then scratch it, essentially, in, in one of his books. In the other book, he's much more fa- favorable towards it in, in the Phaedrus. Mm. Um, but then Aristotle comes and sets up its, his school and includes rhetoric as one of the arts and uh, writes the book, the, uh, the Art of Rhetoric. And there he says that, that rhetoric is the art of finding the available means of persuasion in any given situation. Mm. So it's understanding not just like um, what... So what would be persuasive in this situation? What for this audience uh, does persuasiveness look like? Um, and mm. being able to make the best argument for something, whether or not you're finally able to persuade that audience or not, at least you've made the base best case for it, say it that way. Yeah. Um, okay. So it's understa- understanding the audience, understanding um, how we are persuaded, what how we make decisions, and the the role that um, that language, symbols, and so on uh, plays in that process. Mm. So how, how is that broken down then? How, how does one determine what the, the potential parameters are for, for persuading somebody? I mean, the way that Aristotle breaks it down, it's, it's very service, serviceable, but it, it's, not, it's not everything, of course, but it, mm. it helps as a good way to get in, right? Where he says that, um, that there are three main things or main categories of things that we're persuaded by, right? He talks about ethos, pathos, and logos. You may have heard mm. about those before. <clears throat> Essentially, sometimes we're persuaded by the credibility of the speaker just by itself, just someone with inherent credibility or the way they uh, purport themselves, the way they carry themselves carries credibility, inherent credibility. And we trust them, not because we know anything about the argument, but just because we trust that person. And sometimes mm. that trust comes from personal relationship. We trust our mom in some ways, right? Um, mm. Other times it comes from someone who's, uh, who's third been rigorous about what they've been studying, uh, show a balance in the presentation of it, and also uh, radiate a kind of goodwill towards their audience, right? So that's the yeah. that's the credibility argument. That's that's the ethos. Uh, and there's a lot more that goes into that. But uh, and then other times we're not persuaded pr- primarily by uh, that the case itself changes, but our emotional relationship to that case changes. Mm. Right. So uh, suddenly we're not just bystanders anymore. We're we're involved. Uh, and we all know that we make different decisions when we're in different kinds of mood, different, uh, have different feelings, right? Yeah, uh, of course. And then the third one is logos, where it talks about different ways of chains of argumentation, how things are, how we structure the arguments, how we build up a case, essentially, uh, and different ways of doing that. And then there are the the um, uh, strategies of persuasion in the different, those th- of ethos, pathos, and logos. And then there are fallacies where you have an argument that kind of looks like an argument, but really it's a, it's a method of manipulation. It actually doesn't have a good basis. 
Mm. So there are the strategies and there are the fallacies. And the, the strategies are primarily ethical and the, the fallacies are kind of different forms of manipulation. Right. Okay. Um, so that, that, that would be kind of like yeah. somebody trying to win an argument almost at any cost. Right. So, for example, we talk about the ad, ad hominem. That's not an argument. Yeah. That's a fallacy, right? Yeah. You're, so that, not, that, attacking, that means, you're not talking about the... Yeah. Sorry, ad hominem, that, that's against, is that against the person? Does that mean like an right. attack on the person that you're, you're arguing right. with so or debating it, with? I mean, a, a usual metaphor is that uh, you're, not, you're not going for the ball anymore. You're going for the player, right? Yeah, That's sure. why it's a foul, right? So, yeah, you're, not, so you're, not, you're not debating the topic anymore. You're trying to just tear down your, uh, your counterpart or the one that you're arguing against. And you're trying to mm. win by doing that rather than the, the merits of the case itself. Yeah, so that, that's kind of like the inverse of ethos then, isn't it? So in, in, right. in terms of somebody building up their ethos and their, their credibility of character and their authority in an area, somebody else would then say, well, actually, no, you're not an authority in this area. In fact, you're not an authority at all. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to strip that down. Is that fair to say? Um, I mean, it, it depends because sometimes you do have to make arguments about whether or not someone is credible. Mm. Um, and so not all arguments are ad hominem. Uh, I do think that, for example, whoever who becomes the prime minister, a character matters a lot, right? <laughs> it, sure, it doesn't matter. Absolutely. Uh, it's it's just uh, when you're using it in a setting where that's not appropriate, where it's mm -hmm. like, uh, I'm right because of this. The one person says, and everyone says, actually, you're a stupid guy that uh, in the past voted for this thing and has nothing to do with the case at hand. Does that make sense? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so, so you can have like rebuttal of ethos, for example, and so on, you can have uh, good cases to be made about whether or not you have a, a strong credibility on that issue, whether or not uh, someone who's just a doctor has a doctorate in uh, mechanical physics is any good at climate change. Mm, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right, yeah. those kind of things. That, that's yeah. arguments of ethos. And that's, that's fine. That's, you know, that's, that's because that's relevant, right? Yeah. The thing is when you try to bring it in without it being, without it being relevant. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, that, that's a very good distinction. I think it's an important distinction because we can't just say that the character is never going to be relevant if we're talking about people that we, we, we choose to be our leaders. I, th I think it's very relevant. But like you say, I think that that's really important to note that it's about relevance. It's about appropriateness in terms of right. what what are the issues that we're looking at? What are the facts we're looking at? What are the character traits that we're looking for in this particular person? And, and are they demonstrable in that person or in those persons? So very interesting. So this is great. So, so we've, we've kind of gone right back to, to the, the, the roots of this in terms of the ancient Greeks. Right. What, what is the, so, so, so where have we gone from there? So, so in terms of the, the historical and the cultural significance of, of rhetoric, how does, it, how does it play a role in, in our world today? And, and what's the journey it's kind of gone on since the times of ancient Greece? How many books do you want to read me to recite on the topic? I, there's, <laughs> there's a lot. There. I, I'd have to, I would like to say that uh, the uh, the growth uh, of rhetoric was uh, inherently connected to the growth of democracy, mm. um, because people care about arguments where arguments actually matter and can have force and and power, uh, rather than just the the whims of the despot, yeah, of the tyrant, right, and so. Uh, you had this starting essentially at the, some people say they, the studied art of rhetoric as kind of as an art, as a, a discipline, uh, began in, in Syracuse at the fall of the dictator. There was a, a dictator there that was um, overthrown. And afterwards, there were all these uh, land disputes 
about what he had granted, what he had taken away from certain families uh, and what belonged to whom. And at that point, uh, there arose then two teachers of rhetoric, Corax and Tisius, um, who uh, had remarkable success in helping people to get their land back, essentially to make their claims, even if they didn't have the best connections or were the most wealthy, um, were able to make the, the weaker arguments stronger in some ways, um, or the weaker stronger. Um, and then that was, uh, they were sent as ambassadors to Athens, um, along with Gorgias from, uh, from another city, who was also a teacher of rhetoric. And they then kind of led to a, a blossoming of the study of rhetoric in Athens. Uh, and they were some of the first teachers that really kind of brought that to the forefront and made that into such a popular movement that even uh, Socrates and Plato had to comment on it. <laughs> mm. um, and uh, Isocrates famously built a school of rhetoric that uh, where Cicero says from that school proceeded as um, a flood, some of the greatest men of Athenian history and Athenian culture. Mm. Um, and so he was teaching them how to participate, how to make right speeches, how to participate in the public forums and be able to, to make arguments that had real impact and were able to, um, to shape, shape the, the future of Athens. Wow. So, so it, got, it got people's attention because people understood just how powerful it was, just how potent a, a tool set it could be in, in effecting change and bringing about change, like you say, without status or without money as well. Right. I mean, you had to have some, yeah. some money to be able to, to attend the school in the first place. Isocrates himself, he made his way essentially by being a teacher of rhetoric um, and became a diplomat for Athens uh, to, to negotiate treaties and so on, and, and spoke in the assembly uh, and was listened to by many when he talked about, for example, on the piece is one of the most eloquent pieces of, uh, of rhetoric for, for a peace treaty in favor of a peace treaty that's that's that i've read mm. um and so after him essentially aristotle said it would be a shame to to uh to be silent and let isocrates speak because that was the default he was the one everyone was listening to um and he decided to try to make it a bit more scientific and kind of try to categorize these things uh these pieces of advice that that isocrates had, had made in these these practices that were very successful, a very successful pedagogy, mm. um, and then made that into his book, The Art of Rhetoric. Um, and then that gets continued in, in Athens um, and gets uh, transported further to, to Rome and adopted by, by the Roman Romans who also have a form of democracy or republic mm -hmm. where speech also is powerful um, and where for Cicero becomes the perhaps the uh, epistemy or the the absolutely pinnacle of that arch some say there's no, never been a more eloquent person than him mm. um, who also by the power of speaking was able to rise from his kind of middle class to become the um the leader of rome who was able to suppress uh, a oligarchic rebellion mm. <laughs> or, or a re revolution of uh of um what's it called again cataline the cataline re re revolution that was a pref he was a precursor in some ways, probably you could say, to um, to Caesar. Um, tried to keep the republic from falling into despotism and from falling into uh, tyranny, and then mm. was killed uh, for that effort 
by uh, by Emperor Augustine and Marcus Antonius, who hated him. <laughs> mm, mm. And then, however, because he was so eloquent, the dream of rhetoric and the dream of eloquence and the dream of this kind of free person speaking and speech having power uh, remained um, and was very great, a very great uh, inspiration, actually, to, for example, the founding fathers in America. And they read yeah. Cicero, they read, read Demosthenes and others. Um, and they were all talking about this, this freedom to speak and give these kind of arguments and this eloquence where arguments matter. Yeah. Um, and so it really was being able to have that uh, maintained really became uh, crucial to the birth or rebirth of democracy in, in the modern age. Mm. Um, and so the, if you read those early ones, I mean, John Adams was saying, telling, telling to his sons, you know, read Demosthenes. Uh, it's great for the patriotic spirit and just being able to speak like him will, will uh, or a little bit like him will benefit you greatly in life. Uh, and then we had a kind of a move towards kind of scientism that ended up becoming very kind of critical of everything that was an art and couldn't be strictly um, kind of limited into a science. Yeah. If that makes sense. So, so, it, so couldn't, it couldn't be, it couldn't be, it couldn't be quantified. quantified yeah. Right. Right. And, and then, yeah, they went back to the same thing that, that Plato said, which this is just a kind of a knack. It's a kind of magic. These orators, they're just uh, leading the crowd with this kind of magic that we don't understand, this, this thing that we need to somehow stop mm. um, rather, than, rather than try to understand better and, and be able to promote the better kinds of, of it, I would say. Um, and so it, it fell a little bit into disfavor in this kind of scientific moment in the, in the academia, at least. Yeah. And when, when was that? When did that? You'd say like uh, the rise of positivism probably uh, was a big part of it. Uh, so 1920s, 1930s, and then mm. to the early post-war uh, World War II era, um, mm. where there you get these uh, psychologists essentially and these people talking about mass psychologists psychology and uh, and sociology uh, Lippmann wrote public opinion and said that essentially the through use of advertising symbols slogans all these things that are happening in the advertising industry uh, anyone who wants to and has a little bit of money can shape public opinion however they want to Mm. And that that becomes essentially the the mode of democ democracy is essentially dead because anyone who has the means can do these things, right. um, and that's a little bit of a oversimplification, I would say, of of the human mm. mind and public opinion. But mm. it was something that could be quantified, right? They started this yeah. early kind of okay, we play this thing, and then so and so many people change their opinion about things. They were also, of course, promoting their own art, the art yes. of the public opinion advisor or what became the public relations relations professional mm. um, and so it became rather than an art it became this thing that was supposed to be a science you're supposed to be have empirical measurements you're supposed to be able to give a deliverable to a client and be able to see a net benefit and so and so much uh, increase in the opinion polls of people that agreed with you yeah um, and and the whole matter of, of persuasion became uh, essentially treating people like lab rats yeah okay and so it sounds it became, like a very reductive approach 
Right, because that's what scientism is, essentially. Is if it can't be measured, it's not worth anything. Mm. Mm. Right? So, so it's not science science in itself, but this kind of yes. idea of that, that everything has to mirror science and if it doesn't then it's then it's yeah. uh, essentially bunk or it's 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 nonsense right yeah um, yeah so so how it, did uh, so how did how did rhetoric how did, or or has rhetoric find found its way back from that then what what was the 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 redemption if there has been such a thing of of rhetoric or the perceived value of such because we have this we have these debates in society today about the value of humanities subjects for example universities right. which teach which teach critical thinking things like history things like english why does anybody want to do that when you can't then go and become a coder or an engineer right off off the right. bat so so, right. so where exactly. are we with this now in relation to to rhetoric it used to be the queen of the humanities rhetoric mm. it was kind of seen as the the pinnacle and it used to be the 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 capstone course uh that you took to kind of make your entrance into public life um, it was one of the, uh, it was part of the Roman trivium, right? The, the, the grammar, the rhetoric and philosophy, right? The, or the grammar, the math, mathematics and the rhetoric. Mm. Um, and it's nowhere close to that now. Um, in the academia, it's uh, in the language departments, it's a little bit of a stepchild, somewhere between linguistics and literature. <laughs> mm, sure. Um, it's kind of clawing its back right now and being invited back to a certain extent because of its relevance that I think is becoming much more um, apparent. Uh, I think as a society, we still are um, very much in the thrall of public, public relations experts that use as their basis these mass psychology tests and uh, methods. Mm. Um, I talked to a... a uh, a public communica communications consultant in the uh, Netherlands, and he talked about how um, Daniel Kahneman, who is also a psychologist, yeah, or psych, psych uh, talk, talk about the um, you know thinking fast and slow, mm -hmm. that um, framing and being able to uh, essentially give prompts, emotional prompts to people to go into that fast thinking mode, get scared of things, or in, in different ways swallow things without thinking about it that's that's a lot of what uh is seen as the art of public relations these days mm. and so yeah. it, again it's 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 um in some ways it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy you treat people like lab rats they become lab rats because that's kind of what you encourage in their minds um, mm. but i think that it, it's built on a very simplistic and overly simplistic view of um of the human brain yes and, yeah, um, and, and, and yeah. also maybe the human spirit as well, because yeah. there are people who, like you and I, we're having this conversation now, and we have we have the sentience to to realize what's going on. It's it's not like we're just animals where things are just happening to us. We have this this additional awareness where we can we where we can pick this out, and we can actually choose that we're not going to behave or react in certain ways, which which really makes it interesting, and that that really actually flies in the face of of the whole ethos and, and approach of of those who are trying to treat the mass or the herd in, in such a manner. So in terms of, in terms of flipping this a little bit, David, I'm, I'm interested in picking up on what you mentioned earlier about the, the ethics or the values that, that underpin rhetoric, because rhetoric is, is not, like you said before the call, it isn't amoral, it isn't devoid of any sense of morality or right, right or wrong. So, so what are the ethics that, that underpin rhetoric? 
Mm-hmm. Um, well, first of all, so uh, um, this depends a little bit on um, what, again, you define as it, right? So I'm going mm-hmm. a little bit from uh, from uh, you could say uh, a certain point of view of, of rhetoric, right? So some people say like, oh, that's just rhetoric. That's like in political talk, that's very often says as, okay, anything that's just speech meant to deceive or be able to win an argument rather than something that you really mean. Yeah, right? okay. Um, so uh, what, what I would say is rhetoric is concerned with persuasion was often mislabeled as rhetoric is really kind of man- manipulation, right? So yeah. psychological manipulation is a type of, of social influence. This, this is a quote on it that aims to change the perception or behavior of others through underhanded, deceptive, or even abusive tactics. Mm. So by, by advancing the interests of the manipulator, often at the other's expense, such methods could be considered exploitative, uh, abusive, devious, and deceptive. Um, and though they may have the same end in mind, the process is different. So there's a certain ethics in the process by itself. Mm. Um, you could say in some ways, uh, manipulation is a method that stops working once the other person knows what you're doing. Yes. Does yeah, that make sense? That makes sense. Yeah, completely. That that completely makes sense. The, the game's up then, isn't it? It's, it's a case of, right. well, now I know what you're trying to do. I can see the angles that you're coming from and actually I can, I can mitigate them. And I might even introduce contrary arguments or other facts that, that I'm aware of that you haven't presented, which actually rebut your argument and, and put a hole in it. So, Okay, interesting. And I like how you brought in the the common assumption that, that rhetoric or the common use or the, the offhand use of the word rhetoric as being, oh, well, it's just it's just rhetoric as if, as if it counts for nothing. But of course, there's, right. there's much more to it than that, isn't there? In, in terms of, in a, in a strict sense of the, the art of rhetoric. Right. And so I'd say like just inherently in the, in the process by itself, uh, rhetoric is more moral than, than manipulation in the sense that because it actually uh, uh, tries to persuade rather than kind of slip through your consciousness in some mm. kind of way. <laughs> sure, you know, sure. Like, like all these other things trying to do. So I can, mm. a, a very good speech, I can rhetorically analyze the speech and afterwards I feel even more persuaded. Yes, very good. Does that make sense? Yeah, it just like, makes sense. Because now I see the basis of it and I'm actually even more persuaded or even more kind of like, wow, this is really very well done. Mm. Um, Rather versus uh, versus something where we're like, oh, you just did that to me, and uh, yes, I feel I feel cheated now. I feel I feel like you've been used. I feel feel cheap, right? Mm, completely. I, I think about when you say that. I think about some of the great speeches of history, and I think a lot about FDR's speeches, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, especially in World War Two, because World right. War Two was very much a, that was a war of values. You had you had Hitler and also Mussolini as well, who had espoused fascism and this idea of there being a superior race and they flat out rejected any sense of equality any sense of democracy any sense of liberalism was was flat out rejected but then you had fdr who was very very clear when he he spoke about things like the four freedoms even when he spoke about the only thing you have to fear is fear itself that's very powerful and it's a very powerful phrase but but speaking specifically about the four freedoms set him up as a diametric opposite to Hitler and Mussolini. And that's powerful for me, I think, because like you say, we know what he's trying to do. We know the case that he's making. We know what he's up against. 
and you think, well, which would you rather have? When we look at where FDR was coming from in relation to Hitler and Mussolini, we can see what FDR is trying to do. We can see where his stake in the ground is or where his stakes in the ground are and what he's opposing. And then we can make a decision about which, which way we think is, is preferable to us because value is essentially about beliefs, about what's going to give us and society in general a better outcome over the long term as well. Right. Mm. I mean, I, I'm, I'm reminded of uh, this uh, uh, English diplomat that uh, went to, to talk to uh, Napoleon about a peace treaty. And uh, at the end, he said, like, well, if you do that, what you're saying, um, many thousands of your, your citizens will die. And Napoleon said, looks at him and says, do you honestly think I care about the lives of my countrymen? Mm. And uh, the English diplomat said, I knew I had him then because you could not open this window and say that on the street and still remain in power. Mm. Um, and so, uh, yeah, there's, there's a big difference there where, you know, the, the Hitler's rhetoric, it really relied on a lot of lies and a lot of manipulation. It really was, his speeches uh, were uh, a distortion of reality uh, they required the people to swallow a lot of uh, false information in order to even believe those things. And they required the active production of a lot of lies through their propaganda ministry and Goebbels and so on. Um, and uh, I would say we have a similar uh, situation today in some ways where, you know, we have a time of certain moral clarity and Zelensky is definitely someone who's a gifted, you know, gifted actor, gifted speaker. Uh, but it's also the moment that has its own eloquence um, in, in a way. And his position as being the speaker for people being attacked rather than the aggressor. Yeah. Um, and there's a market difference between the, the, the arguments and the speeches made by him and by, and by Putin right now. Yeah. And that, that's interesting. So, so you talk about the false information that Hitler and the Nazis had to create to form a basis for what Hitler was saying in his speeches and how Hitler's speeches, Hitler's rhetoric, if you like, rested on that false information. But then you brought in Zelensky in Ukraine and then Putin in Russia and comparing those two. Now, when we think about misinformation, what, what astounds me, especially in the situation in Ukraine, is that there are so many who are online talking on Twitter and all over the internet about the corruption of Ukraine and the, the corruption even of, of Zelensky and talking about how it's his fault for, for this happening, almost as, if, almost as if they're absolving Vladimir right. Putin of, of these actions, of, of the invasion, of the bombing, of the terrible atrocities that are going on. And it is absolutely astounding that, that people in a democratic, a democratic nation like the United States are propagating this these narratives which go against not just uh, the Ukrainian people, but also against the United States as well, also, also against their own country, as if to say, right. well, those guys are on the other side. I'm on this side. They're on the other side. So I'm going to stick with my narrative and to hell with what happens over in Ukraine, because by the way, it's, it's Zelensky's fault. That, that's kind of how I read it in terms of what's, right. what's going on at the moment. But there's, there's so much information that's being churned out and how on earth anybody can, can determine what is true and what is false is, is beyond me. But 
but the sheer volume of it and the way that it's being used in very partisan ways is, is quite alarming. Right. So, uh, I mean, there, there's, uh, in, in some ways, you can have different kinds of arguments that are uh, just by choosing this these pieces of information and overlooking these other ones, mm. you, you can get, you know, you can use facts for both of them. Uh, sure. And you come to very different conclusions. That that's definitely the case. But I also think there's um, there is a, a lot of uh, good evidence and a lot of people working to produce that good evidence. Um, and it is a market difference that Ukrainians, to a great extent, can just state things the way they are, and they make mm. that makes an argument in itself. Whereas um, uh, Russia Today and other Sputnik and other propaganda apparatus, they're working overtime to try to where they used to work overtime to try to create a causes belly a reason for war uh, and now have to work uh, overtime to try to retroactively change history or to expand or um, invent uh, atrocities or other events um, essentially in order to to support their case right yeah so yeah yeah. So, so, so this really there is something that there's something that Aristotle says where it may be naive, but the way he says it, and I like to think it's true. Uh, truth and justice are naturally stronger than their counterparts. Yeah. And the only way they can lose if they, is if they have inadequate representation, and that's why sure. everyone sh- that's why everyone should study rhetoric. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because and, then, and the, also... the, then the truth and justice will win out as long yeah. as they have adequate representation, essentially. Yeah. But you made you made a really good point there, David, about what would what historians would call primary source material the primary source material being what is recorded by the individuals who are there at the time and what they are experiencing so people's diaries people's text messages people's tweets who are actually there people's pictures who are actually there the, the videos i mean these sorts the of videos right now yeah the, 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 there's a lot of talk right now about how many tanks and so on are the different sides losing mm-hmm. um and and Russia is claiming, you know, they've only lost a couple of hundred men and stuff like that. Um, and it's refuted by clear video evidence where you can even read like the serial number of the different tanks that have been taken, mm-hmm. that they have lost as many as they have lost indefinitely and perhaps more. But these are just the ones that we have clear video and photographic evidence of. Yeah. So yeah. There are people working overtime on those things just as 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 a service, essentially, to try to make sure that we have. Um, not everything lost in the in in the fog of war that we have a good basis for our understanding of what's going on and and how things are developing. Yeah, yeah, very interesting. I, I like that you make this distinction between between facts and misinformation because it's so it's so topical now and it, it feels like it's more important than any than any other time in history. I, I think I don't think I'm being over the top in saying that just because the spread of information is is rapid. You you look even something like the arab spring that happened what was it 2011 or so when the arab spring yeah. happened and and the, the role of twitter in that to to org, to organize people but not just to organize people but also to incite this this uprising against the, the status quo and it was so alarming to see that in some way you know some people say well it's fantastic you know people power to the people and everything else but but it it, it cuts in various different ways because who knows how how it's going to be used or or how people are are necessarily going to move on that basis what so, what 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 Aristotle said is that giving power to the people means giving power to those who can persuade the people to a certain extent 
Sure. Um, yeah. Right. And so there's a there's a, there's definitely a challenge there that we're um, there's a potential um, for for people to, and this is a little bit what has happened in every communications revolution really um, mm. is that is that uh, people have um, we we've already always had to kind of learn how to deal with it uh, because it's always been yeah. some kind of disruption, right? It's, mm. it's somehow it's it's disrupted. Um, the radio was uh, a major disrupt disruption and give power to voices that that otherwise wouldn't. You wouldn't be able to have the kind of, um, uh, in some ways, uh, censorship and uh, control, totalitarian control that you had in Nazi Germany without the radio and the, mm. the daily broadcasts from Goebbels and so on. But also you wouldn't be able to have the kind of reach of the fireside chats that uh, Roosevelt had. Sure. Um, when these new things come, people don't know how to filter them, mm. and they are often more powerful at the beginning. And then after a while, people get more used to the pitfalls and so on, and, and the different ways to deal with it, deal with things. Mm. Um, and what you really need in those times, uh, what is essential, is that you have people um, that have been trained not just to be able to think critically, but to maybe be able to make counter arguments against these powerful forces. Yes. So this is a, this is a quote from, uh, from John Dewey about uh, that by making the individual both the means and the end of democracy, and it's not easy democracy, it really requires a lot of the people that we kind of make the democracy for, um, society committed itself to investing its energies into creating individuals capable of possessing a moral will that achieves enough autonomy from dominant social forces that it is capable of reacting back on those forces with intelligence and power. Mm. So there's a lot that goes in there, definitely being able to have a moral will of your own, a lot of creation of character, mm. all those different things. But something that definitely has to be part of it, I think, is be able to analyze the sources of influence that are hitting us every day from every angle and in different kinds of media and being able to formulate our own arguments to potentially counter uh, waves of public opinion that may be uh, sweeping the country or our society or a family to places mm -hmm. where we don't want to go. And so you need to be able to have both the, the understanding of rhetoric in some ways of what's coming towards you mm -hmm. and the uh, rhetorical ability yourself as a rhetor to, to make a counter argument. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So different different skill sets and to use a sporting analogy more than anything else, it's it's having defense and offense in, in check and, and making sure that, that your game is on point in, in both respects. So with that exactly. in mind with that in mind, David, what, what sort of tips have you got for us? What sort of advice have you got for us in, in terms of how to do that, how to play defense against misinformation and also how to play offense in, in promoting good information that, that promotes good values that ensures people's freedom. Hmm. Um, I think uh, there's there's a lot that goes into that. Um, what I'd like to say is uh, perhaps rather than information, what we're talking about is what kind of arguments are you promoting, um, and thinking about a little bit about the basis of of where this is going to, uh, what this is leading towards, right? Hmm. Um, so, for the things that you know, uh, you need to be able to see that. Of course, everything that comes at you comes at you at an angle, from an angle, 
right? Yeah. Uh, anyone that's spreading things, they have an agenda. That doesn't mean that you suddenly just shut off everything and say like, oh, I don't believe anyone or anything, uh, mm. except for, for some reason, some of these conspiracy theories people, this one person knows the truth and everyone else is lying. Mm, sure. <laughs> we're, all controlled by, we're all controlled by lizard men, didn't you know? <laughs> <laughs> right, so there's... Uh, uh, the, that's actually a, another one that's called uh, Kaim Perlman. He was a, uh, a, uh, in the Jewish resistance during uh, World War II in, in Belgium um, and was able to actually save people from a train that was going to Auschwitz. One of the only uh, actually uh, successful attempts of, at, at saving people like that. Uh, and he wrote a book called The New Rhetoric. And he says that a problem is with, in philosophy, his, in his training in analytic philosophy, he was trying to make um, write a book about justice, and he found that his training in analytic philosophy gave him absolutely no basis for doing that. Mm -hmm. uh, and that based on that framework, the Nazis were as just as the Jewish resistance to Nazism. Mm -hmm. Because you find that they were trying to make arguments, by making, trying to make arguments too rigid and too kind of in some ways uh, robotic, it yeah. completely left out the human dimension. Yeah. Um, wow. And so, so what he wrote then is the new rhetoric, uh, which was a uh, Aristotle new Aristotelian attempt, essentially saying, okay, well, how do actually people na navigate these things? How mm. do we actually, um, in practice, you know, just for reading newspaper articles and literature and seeing all these different kinds of arguments people do use? Mm -hmm. um, and one of the things that he says is that um, uh, that. If all argumentation must be considered misleading form of reasoning, then the lack of logical experimental proofs would leave the fields of human reasoning wide open in all essential spheres of life to suggestion and violence. Because mm. you have like no reason basis for anything uh, mm. except for things that really aren't important at all. So if we can't mm. argue about ethics, for example, and those other things in any other way than just like analytical and logical. Um, mm. Then we have no. Then we ha we can't say anything, and everything becomes just either a matter of force or uh, and or arbitrariness, and just well, nothing yeah. matters. Right? Yeah. So you have yeah. like the 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 relativist trap, you could say. I heard your TED talk about the hedonist trap. That's this is the sure. relativist trap, right? Is that that? Yeah. The, the step from fanaticism to relativism is very very short. Uh, mm. They're both they're both based on there not being any basis. Uh, other than perhaps force for for anything yeah yeah right. yeah exactly how, how how do you how do you break it down how do you decide whether something is good or not for example how do you, how do you decide what what is good or bad I, I'm very passionate about that very question itself because in the work that I do as a mentor I talk a lot to people about values the the mentoring that I do is values based it isn't just it isn't just mere coaching and it isn't just talking about when I say mere coach, I mean, it isn't just a, a talking shop and going through all the regular sorts of questions about where you want to be in five years and stuff, although that plays into it, but it's contextualized and it's contextualized around particular values in that person's life. So there is an orientation to it because there has to be an orientation to it. Otherwise, you end up with these sorts of exercises that you get in, in, in corporate settings where you have somebody come in and say, oh, let's talk about your values. And they give you a list of 30 or 40 different values, devoid of any context. And they say, now pick your top five. You think, well, how on earth is, is that helpful in any way, shape or form? Because I could be feeling hungry right now. 
And that's going to influence the answer that I give at that particular moment. Or I right. might be I might be scared about a conversation I'm about to have with my boss. So that might influence how I, I feel about safety and these other things. So there has there has to be a context to these things. We have to make some decisions about what sort of framework and what sort of orientation we're going to take in terms right. of deciding what what good and less good and bad is going to be because we we have to we have to do that otherwise like you say what what is what is the basis otherwise you can, you can look at things like nazism and these other things that that seek to take away freedom that seek to introduce stratification and and domination as well and say well they've got the biggest gun they've got the most power so fair play that there you go you you do what you like and you set society up as, as you would want to do and that that to me almost sounds Nietzschean in terms of the the idea of of the the ubermensch and right. the, the the transvaluation of values the revaluation of values it's mm-hmm. you know this idea of the ubermensch begets an, an untermensch there has to if there's going to be an overman there has to be an underman there's going to be a superman right. there has to be something less than that and so it's it's quite interesting how these these things are are playing out as well you mentioned ukraine i, I very much see that in relation to Vladimir Putin's approach to to Ukraine and his viewpoint of the other Slavic nations as well. It's it's quite it's quite telling. I, I'm not going to try and psychoanalyze him from a distance, but it very much seems something similar to the will to power that is driving right. him forward in reclaiming this this revanchism that that is is being enacted now in horrific fashion. Very much seems yeah. like this. So so it's so important, isn't it, to 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 really have a clear sense of what what good and bad is to us and in relation to our lives holistically because if we don't know what that is then we can be manipulated can't we right that's exactly right and uh again that's talking about being able to possess a moral will to get enough autonomy from powerful social forces and be able to react back on those with intelligence and power right mm, um, yeah again that's this this being able to say like okay actually okay so these are the different forces that are working on me right now and they're directing me in a certain direction. Um, Are they good forces? Are there forces that I want to direct my life? Um, What are the things that I'm actually passionate for based on my experience of things? Um, And, Mm -hmm. and what are some things I'd be willing, uh, uh, you know, uh, irrespective of the praise or the condemnation I get for them to, to to risk things for to to do things for right yeah yeah absolutely to to, to sacrifice things for yeah it's it's that it's having that self-knowledge isn't it it's having the self-knowledge about what you're all about and if you don't know what you're all about then anybody on any given day can pull you around it's kind of like in pinocchio when pinocchio is tempted to go to go off and don't worry about school come to come to pleasure island with us we'll have a a gay old time and we'll smoke cigars yeah yeah (laughs) Well, it, it's it's yeah, exactly. that, that's it, and and that, but that's the thing. So so he's he's manipulated on on a single point, and he doesn't really see the the end from the beginning, so to speak. So he thinks it sounds a lot better than school. So let's go off and and have fun. But the other thing, the other thing to mention on this as well, I, I was listening to some, I think it was um, somebody from Columbia Business School who's an expert in persuasion. I think it was Bob Bon Bon Tempo, if if I get his name right. But he was talking about persuasion and what really struck me about that, and and this relates to what you're saying about self-awareness and self-possession, was that unless we have self-control, unless we're able to master ourselves and 
to not have our egos run amok, then we don't really have much chance of persuading other people because we're going we're right. gonna to trip over ourselves. So it's similar to what you were saying there about having that, that self-awareness about what our values are and what's in, most important to us in a holistic sense, but also being able to not be driven by our egos because it strikes me that with this demagoguery that we're seeing so much of throughout, not just, you know, not in just in faraway places, but also in the Western world, we're seeing that a lot of it is, is, is playing into people's egos and the idea of, of their expected status. I should be this. I should be that versus other people. And it, it, it right. seems to me that we get, we get tripped up on that quite a bit, don't we? Mm -hmm. Definitely. Um, I wonder if I could just uh, uh, go a little bit to kind of finish the, the point on, on the ethics uh, yeah, go on ahead. ethics of rhetoric, um, but but uh, there was something I wanted to catch on to there. Yes, about having a sense of of identity, I guess, and then the sense of mm. uh, this is what I stand for, this is who I am, um, and this is what I want. This is what I want to fight for, and then being able to get the ability to react back on those forces, as it says, with intelligence and power, being able to find okay, how can I formulate a good argument how can i uh, get people to join my cause um how can i get people to understand me uh, because if you were to talk about uh, the, the main things about rhetoric is that it, it's a it's a form of pleading it's a form of mm. inviting the other person in the most powerful and uh best way possible to share or to share your the the things that you're seeing in your mind Mm -hmm. um, and what you use as a bridge is your common humanity, the things that you have in common. You can, you can use that as a bridge to invite them in, to say it that way. Yeah. And to invite them in the most, in the most powerful way, that's, that's what persuasion is. That's what's in my mind. That's, that's what's persuasive. Mm -hmm. So there's a, there's a certain ethics to the process um, in itself, even though it, you know, obviously can be used for, for bad ends, but it's better than doing it through, as I said, manipulation. Um, this is what Brian Garson says from uh, from Princeton University, from Princeton or Yale University, where he says that um, that being persuaded. Uh, we often talk about being persuaded, but actually, there's a difference between being persuaded and being indoctrinated or brainwashed. The difference yeah. lies in the active independence that is preserved when we are persuaded. Um, an orator does not coerce, he merely puts words into the air, air. Mental digestion that we go through is a process over which we can exert some, exercise some control. We reject arguments that seem far-fetched or suspicious. So being persuaded is not exactly the same as learning, but it is related to learning. Mm. So when someone sits back and decides, all right, you persuaded me, He's not merely describing something that's happened to him, some kind of process over which he had no control. So in, in spite of the grammar, he's describing something that he has done or participated in. Yes, yes. That's, that's perfect. I, I think that participatory element is, is a perfect way of putting it in terms of it not just being, you're not just a receptacle of information that somebody else is imposing upon you, but you are, you are actively assessing it. It's that critical thinking part right. of the, the process as well isn't it and, and taking it in and thinking okay well uh, again you know ethos pathos and logos and, and looking well okay is, is this is the source credible in the context that, that they're delivering this information you know does this resonate with with how i feel about things without me being feeling like my heart's been been ripped out or 
and being manipulated or having buttons pushed on me. And then is is the logic sound as well? And, and I suppose we we would do well to use ethos, pathos, and logos in relation to our assessments of of information that we we receive as well. Definitely, um, yeah. To be able David, to analyze it in that same way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. D- David. I've got to ask you. You've you've thoroughly convinced me. I, I do quite a bit of public speaking myself, anyway. But you've thoroughly convinced me that I to to improve my rhetoric skills even further and to to be more engaged with rhetoric as as an art in itself. So so how can I and other listeners go about doing that? Hmm. So I mean, uh, the thing is, what uh, what I can kind of show people to go towards are some some very good sources, but obviously there's some of them classical sources and other things. Um, there, obviously, when it comes to just being used to speaking in public and so on, there's Toastmasters and you know other other mm-hmm. uh, um, other places to go to other clubs and so on. But the thing is, they used this used to be, uh, you know, this having like speech clubs, debate clubs and stuff like that, this used to be entertainment. You know, this is what people used to do. The lyceums that uh, Ralph Waldo mm. Emerson used to go and present that. And then afterwards that was followed by a debate and so on. These literate societies where people were reading something and then they would debate the merits of it and so on. Um, I mean, the to a certain extent, there's, uh, there's a certain length you can go or a certain place, you, uh, amount you can go to through just uh, you know through reading things but then you have to put, try to put those things into practice yeah um, I would say that uh, some of the best some of the best books obviously are some of the classics when it comes to to rhetoric Aristotle's on rhetoric it's a bit heavy but it does uh, really help you to see okay what do I need to do what do I need to know about my audience uh, in order to understand what's persuasive to them, how they, how I can reach into them in the best possible way. Um, and um, then uh, there's uh, Cicero's on the, the Inventiona um, and the Rhetorica Adherenium are some of the classical sources where they're, they're quite practical. They're, they're a little bit like school books. I mean, Cicero talks about the Inventiona essentially being the notes he took from from his lectures, um, so there there are some some things there. Um, obviously, I have a rhetorical leadership podcast where I try to share some of the things, but a lot of it also goes on rhetorical theory and a little bit deeper than just the basic practice of it. Um, and people are, wel- are welcome to to join there. I also have a blog that I've been where I've been writing some things uh, called the Intelligence of Persuasion blog. Um, so that's that's also another place to go. Fantastic. They're, they're great recommendations, David. And it has been an absolute pleasure to, to discuss this with you. This very, very topical theme, something that, that is really, really important for all of us at any time. Like, like you said before the, the call started, we need to know how to communicate. We need to know how to receive information as well. Receiving information, interpreting information is critical as well. So thank you so very much for your time on the Real Clear Values podcast. All right. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Real Clear Values podcast with Tom English. If you know anyone who is looking for success that's both meaningful and sustainable for themselves or their organization, then please send them this podcast. And if you yourself are looking to create a life of purpose, meaning and fulfillment for your own version of sustainable success, then I offer a mentoring program 
that will get you on your way. Just go to 3stewardships.com or message me directly to tom at 3stewardships.com. That's tom at 3stewardships.com. Until next time, I'm Tom English and I wish you all the best in your own pursuit of sustainable success.